Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the April 8th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Our plan is to provide twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcast updates featuring the latest news and answering your questions about COVID-19. Please know that just as knowledge of COVID-19 is evolving, this program will evolve over time as new information warrants. We welcome your suggestions to make this as beneficial as possible. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website at covid19.dkbmed.com for complete CME and CE information. Support for this program is provided by DKB Med. To access other free CME and CE programs, attest for credit, and view or listen to last week's content, please visit us at dkbmed.com. Here are the overall learning objectives for the program. With us today, we have Dr. Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for joining us. Take it away. Yeah, thank you so much, Faith. And um, thanks again to DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, and also the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for their support of this program. And as Faith mentioned, uh, prior programs that cover a lot of a, bro uh, a broader range of topics are on earlier programs. This is the uh, Johns Hopkins real-time app that captures really global uh, confirmed cases of COVID disease. And these are the active cases identified that really highlight what I think everyone's aware that New York City is really the epicenter of um, COVID-19 disease in North America. But this is an illness that is seen uh, most frequently in cities. And it appears the denser the city, the more frequently it's seen. The rapid spread from Wuhan in December of 2019 to now, really across the globe, has brought up a number of questions on how this virus has been able to spread so fast and has really prompted a lot of anxieties and questions. So today what I'd like to do is focus on three areas, that is transmission and contagiousness, also uh, a brief update on diagnosis, and then lastly uh, discuss uh, what we know about therapeutics at this time. So returning to transmission and contagiousness, the question is how did this virus spread so quickly? The first uh, concern is most coronaviruses are thought to be spread by respiratory droplet. These are heavier particles that fall to ground with gravity within three to six feet typically, versus much smaller particles, that's aerosol spread, that can be airborne and remain suspended. And, and this has been the case, for example, with measles virus. So the question is, um, is there really aerosol transmission? Alternatively, uh, recently you may have heard estimates from um, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, uh, Bob Redfield, or Tony Fauci, uh, who heads up the uh, National Infectious Diseases and Allergy Institute um, at the NIH, uh, with the range of 25 to 50 percent. And this is really quite extraordinary, and if true, 
means that this is a highly successful virus because most people uh, uh, don't become ill and then can effectively spread and share the virus. One of the reasons uh, that people have been very, uh, I think, anxious and patients um, about whether this virus is airborne um, as a result of aerosolization came about from this paper in the New England Journal. And I have to emphasize this was done as an experiment. It used a nebulizer machine and also a generator drum to make very fine aerosols uh, that, as you can see here, can remain suspended to some degree in the air for up to three hours. This has really generated a lot of concern, but this is under ideal and experimental conditions. And to date, there's really no convincing evidence that this virus is spread routinely by aerosol. Now, of course, in the hospital, we uh, do take precautions because suctioning and other such maneuvers could generate aerosols, but uh, it does not seem to be the case or else we would have seen outbreaks on airplanes and in other uh, environments, which would be much more reflective as we tend to see with measles, for example, when uh, in Disneyland in uh, 2014. This same experimental data also suggested it could stay on certain surfaces, such as stainless steel or plastic, for up to three days. But again, this was under ideal conditions with very small particle sizes, um, room temperature at 40 degrees. So this is unlikely to be the case um, uh, routinely. So this is something that is ideal and experimental, but has really provoked a lot of anxiety. And because of this, it is really more, I think, the asymptomatic shedding of virus that have really prompted people uh, and across the country and certainly uh, in Asia to undergo universal masking. And the CDC has recently changed this to use cloth uh, type masks, not uh, surgical or N95s, with the idea that uh, people who don't know they're ill or shedding when they're speaking um, or not aware of being very careful with their hand or touching their face uh, would uh, prevent this, especially if they're going out into the public or community uh, settings. So the recommendation was for a universal, not mandatory masking. And the thought is it would help with these asymptomatic shedders. Certainly I have seen in our own community that uh, this is happening more, but certainly not uh, all the time on my few trips out. And in our hospital, everyone is wearing universal masks. We've been doing that now uh, for some time. And uh, I myself uh, have always worn a mask when I see a patient and have asked the patient vice versa in the outpatient clinic. I'll also just mention that this virus is not very hard to render non-infectious. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, has an RNA envelope whereby soap, alcohol, heat, uh, other solvents render it um, uh, non-infectious. So uh, basic maneuvers and including bleach uh, can take care of this uh, very effectively. It is not something that's impervious by any means. I think to get at the question of what uh, the nasopharyngeal aspirates and the molecular testing for viral RNA mean, 
has been often a confusing issue for both clinicians and patients. Uh, this study from Germany, uh, which was published last week in Nature, I think provides some extraordinarily useful insights. Now, these were only nine patients. Uh, they were not severely ill, um, uh, as would be many hospitalized patients, but I think it does give some insights. And I'd like to just spend a couple of moments walking through this slide for you. On panel A, it shows that even up to three to four weeks after onset of symptoms, people are still swab positive to some degree of the nine. Not everyone, but people can shed this viral RNA for some time. And in B and C, you can see it's also identified in patients in throat swabs, sputa, as well as in stools. Now, I, I wanna emphasize the fact if we flip over to F, that the proportion of patients or patients that remained viral culture positive, meaning we could find infectious virus, really were not present after day 10. This suggests that if you pivot up to D, as people start generating antibodies, uh, positive cultures uh, really are no longer so by day nine or 10 but you'll still find the viral RNA. So I think this gives some reassurance to the non-severely ill that by day 10 and so on, that in most patients, they may no longer be infectious, which uh, can give some comfort to uh, the um, advice from the CDC that people should be three days without any symptoms and at least seven days into illness such that I think if you're at day 10 for a routine patient, it's less likely you're going to be infectious. Now, this may not be true for hospitalized patients and um, people with immune suppression who might be shedding infectious virus longer. We'll just have to wait for additional studies. And I'll just uh, say this is also reinforced down in H because there was subgenomic RNA, which really looked for viral message which means there's active viral replication. And you can see um, as uh, time went on, you didn't see it in the swab uh, on later days. Now, in terms of diagnostics though, on the other hand, these molecular studies probably are not the kind of PCR results we're typically used to in the 90% plus range. Some of this could be operator issues in terms of obtaining specimens and our Sensitivity is probably less than 90%. It may be as low as 80% um, in hand. So we're still waiting. There's no good data yet to really suggest the sensitivity and specificity of our testing, unfortunately. So now if you have patients that you're highly suspicious for uh, COVID-19, a second test, if the first one is negative, may be called for, especially in hospital settings. Serology has gotten a lot of press. I think it will have a very useful role, but that too, we have to be very clear that the antibody test that is being obtained um, rings true and won't have false positives or false negatives, and that it might truly reflect uh, protective immunity. These are all questions we don't yet know but uh, its role, at least in the early phases before it's defined, may be for those high suspicion patients who are 
initially negative on nucleic acid testing uh, in hospital. Uh, so if you have someone that's into their illness for seven or 10 days, then perhaps serology could be useful. I'd like to end by just talking about therapeutics, uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Uh, the anti-malarials remain prominently in the news almost every day, um, and a bit of a debate uh, from very public venues uh, in Washington to uh, concerns and caveats by public health officials, scientists, and clinicians. So we really don't know how well they work, but I just want to make some points. Hydroxychloroquine is very well known to act as a potent antipyretic, much like uh, ibuprofen or even acetaminophen. So I think you have to keep that in mind. Uh, many of the studies that were done in China also uh, compared the drug to usual care, and they included also receiving, for example, um, protease inhibitors, traditional Chinese medications, or anti-influenza drugs. There have been no randomized controlled trial data yet from the United States. Some of those studies are just to be launched, and uh, perhaps we'll have some answers in four to eight weeks. And uh, these drugs have failed with every other viral infection known, so I, I don't have high hopes that it will work. But here's the data, and I'll just go through it quickly so everyone's aware and can sort of make their own determinations. A lot of press first came off with a study by Gao uh, which was really just a mention in a paper, almost like a press release that in 100 patients, they said, oh, the chloroquine inhibited um, pneumonia and lessened the duration of illness. It was two sentences, we know nothing more. A study by Chen was a randomized controlled trial with 30 patients using hydroxychloroquine. Interestingly, in that paper, uh, the uh, there was little difference seen between control and hydroxychloroquine in terms of viral shedding, uh, and clinical effects were none in, in terms of the difference. So a small trial, which means that if there is an effect, it's modest and would need much larger study. A different study by a different Chen uh, looked at 62 patients, again, studying hydroxychloroquine. They didn't look at viral carriage at all, but they were, uh, the st study did suggest that there was reduced fever. Remember the caveat I said, these are antipyretics. Uh, reduced fever by one day and said that the imaging improved more than the placebo group. Gautre from France, uh, this study got a lot of press. It was a, a uncontrolled trial in 36 looking at hydroxychloroquine as well as hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in six patients on a post hoc analysis. And suggested that there was marked decrease in viral shedding in the patients that got the combination therapy. This study was quite criticized on a number of aspects, but probably most importantly, that patients that died or went to the ICU uh, were not counted in the study, which uh, could mean significant bias. Uh, the group then uh, published a larger series, also looking at combination therapy, but these were in patients that had very mild disease, outpatient, um, four people were asymptomatic, very few were very ill, and what they said was that 80% of these patients were negative for viral carriage by molecular analysis at day eight, but there is no comparator arm. A different French group um, rapidly published a paper of 11 
uh, also looking at a combination therapy with azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, and they pushed back and said, look, we're still finding virus at day five and six. I think it's unlikely that um, the other trial uh, worked as well. Now, they did look at a sicker population. One of their patients died, and another had QT prolongation, prompting cessation of therapy. So you can draw your own conclusions. I, I think it's personally unlikely that hydroxychloroquine would work. We await uh, quality uh, and large uh, randomized controlled trials. Uh, if there is an effect, it's probably modest. Okay, Dr. Alwater, thank you for those updates. Um, we're now gonna continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions for Dr. Alwater of your own, please send questions to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another session. Okay, first question. What is your take on tocilizumab as therapy? Have they considered IL-6 inhibitors at Hopkins? Yes, so we are using the drug on a very limited basis in, at uh, Johns Hopkins and um, in the health system hospitals. It's, it's a drug that uh, is thought to be perhaps useful at inhibiting the cytokine uh, cascade. So patients that are often into day five, seven, or 10 of illness seem to have a decompensation with intense elevations in temperature, uh, further respiratory distress, and then elevations in uh, interleukin-6, ferritin, C-reactive protein. Uh, and so these uh, do seem to perhaps be a potential target for this monoclonal antibody against the IL-6 receptor. The only study I'm aware of published uh, is a 21-patient uh, trial from China that suggested some benefit um, uh, with fever reduction and improved clinical outcomes. Uh, people have anecdotally uh, said that um, there have been miraculous turnarounds in 24 to 48 hours. Where we're trying to target its use at Johns Hopkins uh, based on very little data is people that may be on the cusp of requiring intensive unit care or intubation in an effort to try to stave that off or reverse se severe illness and particularly high-risk people. But again, we have very limited supply. And uh, if and just so you're aware, if there is a randomized controlled trial looking at these so-called immunomodulator therapies, uh, we uh, are very much encouraging patients to enter into those because we really don't know if these drugs are effective or not. Great, thank you. Next question. What is the mortality rate for people with COVID-19 requiring mechanical ventilation? Is it as high as 80 or 90%? So in a variety of series, I think it, it certainly depends. I've seen rates as high as 50 or 60% or more. Um, I think if you're looking at a very frail uh, population, elderly population, it might venture that high if you're talking about 80 or 90 year olds on a ventilator. Uh, there was an article just published a couple of days ago in JAMA uh, uh, relating the ICU experience in Northern Italy, and I believe uh, they quoted a 24% mortality rate in that population. So uh, 
it, it really does depend, Faith, and I would caution listeners because, at, for example, at our hospital, uh, there's a tendency to intubate early rather than waiting till people are in extremis. So we may have a sort of lower bar to, to put people on mechanical ventilation uh, on the floor uh, and then move them to the ICU. So I think everyone, it's very hard to get at that data um, in terms of a meaningful way, because I do think there's uh, variations in practice. Thank you. Next question. Do we know if patients already taking hydroxychloroquine for lupus or RA have any protection from COVID-19 because they're already on this drug? Yeah, so I, I told you about the, the interventions of these drugs as an antiviral for treatment, but it has been proposed that these drugs, which might inhibit uh, formation of new viruses by interfering with acidification of the phagolysosome within host cells, uh, might offer protection. Uh, we don't know. I'm certain that uh, people are looking at large databases uh, with electronic medical records to see if there can be an effect. I will tell you there's a healthcare worker study out of the University of uh, Minnesota, uh, which I think is looking at 1,500 patients. Uh, please don't quote me on that number, but a large number of healthcare providers randomized to drug or placebo to see if it offers protection. So we, we might also have some information from a clinical trial as well. Great, thank you. Um, there have been reports from China about people who seemingly recovered from COVID-19, were discharged from the hospital and then readmitted when they tested positive a second time. Do we know if that's because of actual reinfection or a testing error? Yeah, so the readmissions probably come in a couple of flavors, and I, I thought I, I might outline those. As I mentioned early on, uh, there is a probably uh, um, a lack of sensitivity of the tests, so that's one potential aspect. Uh, so people could be sent home, and then they worsen um, later on, sort of a double sickening as a cytokine um, sort of storm comes on, that's possible. For people that have been in the hospital longer, some have also returned after apparent improvement and uh, they may be prone to, to bacterial sec, uh, super infection. Also patients that have been in hospital a long time, there's a growing sense that uh, people might be uh, prone to thromboembolic events or even fungal pneumonias, particularly with aspergillus. Now this None of this has been uh, published yet. A lot of this is anecdotal information, which we're just learning about. But uh, we all know that uh, MRSA pneumonia is a potential complication of influenza. So I do think there'll be those sorts of issues that may be a consequence of uh, COVID-19 infection. We were curious as to whether it's necessary for people to clean their groceries if we're bringing them in the house, based off the slide you presented about uh, aerosol generation. Yeah, so um, I think there is a potential for what we call fomite transmission, that uh, if virus it is on surfaces and it gets on your hands, and then you touch your hands to your face or your eyes or your nose, um, it's possible you could acquire it. Um, uh, for people that want to be extra careful, you could take gloves, uh, wear gloves when you're getting your mail, packages, or groceries, for example. 
and then um, uh, rinsing uh, produce and so on. But it's not likely that in those sorts of surfaces the virus survives very long. Um, cardboard, for example, in ideal environments was about 12 hours, but I would tell you in routine, uh, it probably would be uh, less uh, to give you some, some sort of sense, but we don't, we don't have great studies, at least with this particular coronavirus yet, but others would suggest um, that it can survive, but whether how transmissible it is, is, is a question we don't know. Great. Thank you again, Dr. Allwater, for joining us today. Um, to claim CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity. We will send out an email when it is available next week. Any questions can be submitted by sending to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question as an answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for your time. Oh, and Faith, thank you and thank you all for listening and uh, I wish you well and safety for your, yourself, your families and your patients.